I want to pray before we get started, because I'm going to take you in a little different direction this morning than I have been in Thessalonians, but it is going to tie to Thessalonians the next time that I preach, and uh, I think it's important that we begin where I'm going to start today to think about why sanctification is even possible and what assurance we have that we can actually walk in it. So if you would pray with me and for me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, that grace that brought us salvation by sending forth your son to be our propitiation, to to take our place, to appease your wrath and provide for us righteousness by which we are given the new birth. And through that, Lord, we we then walk in light of the grace we've been given and by the power of your spirit who activates the new heart to magnify Christ work now and forever in eternity. We pray that you'd help us to understand the truth of your word today and examine our hearts accordingly. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so this morning I want to speak to you about an important and practical topic. I want to specifically look at the evidences of the new birth that we see in 1 John. We're actually going to do a survey of 1 John this morning. And I want to cover this topic really before I get into 1 Thessalonians 4, where we're going to be looking at the doctrine of practical sanctification. I want to cover this first because to call people to sanctification without establishing and examining the assurance of their salvation can lead to both deadly and discouraging consequences. And I think it's important that we focus a little bit of our time today on doing just that, examining the doctrine of assurance. Because, again, the the doctrine of sanctification, apart from the doctrine of assurance, can lead unbelieving people among us toward legalism. It can lead you toward a legalistic mindset where you begin to think that, that God might love you if you could just obey those commands that we see that are given to saints in sanctification, or if you try really hard to be a better Christian and to do good works to please God through your own efforts, that is the essence of legalism, and that is a damnable error. It will condemn you before God one day if you do not understand that the only thing that pleases God is the work of his son in your place. And you need to have your assurance of your salvation based on that, not on the things that you're trying to do to please God in and of yourself. And in a different way, the doctrine of sanctification, apart from assurance, can lead true believers, not just unbelievers, in the wrong direction damnably, but true believers in the wrong direction towards discouragement or a morbid introspection where you begin to actually think that you're not performing well enough and and that God might not really love me because I'm just not doing all that I'm supposed to or I fail to do these things all the time consistently. And so I often just give up because if I can't do it perfectly, if I can't do it consistently, I'm just going to check out and just quit altogether. That leads to doubt and discouragement and it robs you of the joy that you're promised And so both of those can be problems. One is damnable. One is discouraging or depressing. And I don't want us to talk about sanctification without understanding and grasping the doctrine of assurance of eternal security in that sense, that we're secure in Christ. We're assured of sanctification because of Christ being set apart as our propitiation. 
He did what it takes to make us right before God and to set us apart for eternity. And so before I move on into practical sanctification there in 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to basically try to help you examine your salvation this morning. I want you to examine your salvation so you can experience the joy of sanctification. Now, self-examination is not meant for the Christian to be discouraged by. It's actually meant to encourage you. Because as you examine yourself, you see that you fall short of the glory of God. But you immediately look to Christ who never did. He always did what you are commanded to do in sanctification. And that brings you back to repentance and confession of sin and joy that drives you into sanctification out of thanksgiving for what he's accomplished in your place. And so I I want you to know that that self-examination is commanded To help us, not to hurt us. It's to help turn our hearts back to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith and the basis of our assurance before God. Second Corinthians 13 says this as a command. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Well, I pray that everyone here passes the test today. But in any congregation of any size, whether it's three, four, twenty four, two hundred and four, there are people sitting among us that will not pass the test. And you need to examine yourselves this morning. And I think first John is the place to go, because I think in first John, you will be assured based on what God has said, whether or not you are in the faith. And it will not discourage you. Even if you do not see perfection in the things that we're seeing that are laid out for us here in first John about the evidence of our salvation, you'll see a desire in your own heart. If you're born again to pursue these things out of the joy of knowing that Christ is your assurance before God. And we need to examine ourselves often. The scripture says we need to do it from time to time because Jeremiah 17, 9 says that we can't trust our subjective feelings about our spiritual state. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot lean upon our own understanding. We cannot lean upon our own feelings. We need something that is more sure and objective. We need a more sure objective standard than our own hearts, our own emotions, our own feelings at the moment. And praise God, we have an objective standard in the word of God. And we need that standard because at times, I don't know about you, but I know myself and I can say this confidently. At times I feel saved sitting here in this environment around all of you. I feel like a Christian. I feel born again, singing praises, shaking hands, having fellowship, hearing someone teach the word of God. I feel saved. But the real test for me and probably for you is when you leave this building, even practically today, when you leave this building and you get into your car and then someone tailgates you all the way home or cuts you off in traffic. At that moment, you may not feel or sound like a Christian. Is that not true? We all experience that. And so if if I base it on my experience, I can become very discouraged. I can find myself very doubtful based on what I'm doing at the moment. But my my assurance is not based on my feelings. 
That's a kind of a silly example I give you about being tailgated or your expression of anger in the car. But I, I mention that because I think there are many of us here today that are in a constant battle with discouragement and doubt about your salvation. I think there are many of us here that are always wondering, am I truly saved? Am I truly born from above, regenerated? I don't feel it sometimes. I didn't sound like it last night. I didn't act like it yesterday. Am I truly saved? And you may just really struggle with that a lot. You may think that I just don't meet the standard. Or maybe you set other people up as your standard of what salvation should look like. Maybe you look at Paul Wilson back there and you think that's the standard of salvation. I want to be like Paul. Well, if you ask Paul, if he's the standard of salvation and regeneration, he'll say no, but Christ is because I fall short every day. If you look to me, you're going to be disappointed. He is not the standard. I'm not the standard. Christ is the standard and he is the fulfillment of our righteousness. We look to him when we're doubting and discouraged, not on what we feel. We look to his word of promise that establishes the truth of our regeneration for us in him. Now, that's that's many of you today, I think, that may struggle with this constant battle. But on the other hand, there may be some here today thinking I've never even considered not being a Christian. I'm, I'm an American. I was born here. We're all Christians, aren't we? We live in this Bible Belt environment, thinking that you're saved because because you have an orthodox confession that you make or you're saved because you try to be a good person or you're saved because I go to church all the time. I mean, Wednesday night, small groups, Sunday mornings. And maybe you've never even stopped to consider and examine your own heart to say, am I really a Christian according to the word of God? Am I setting my own standard up to be a Christian or am I trusting in what God has set before me to establish the reality of my salvation? And by the end of the message today, some of you may actually come to the conclusion that you are not born again. I don't want that for you on on one level because I want everyone here to be a Christian. At the same time, I want you to understand that if that happens to you today, if you have a false sense of assurance today based on your own efforts and your own abilities, I I want you to be broken over that today. I want you to know that I have good news for you today. Good news that you hear from this pulpit every Sunday, that by God's grace, all of your doubts can be removed if you would but trust in Christ and turn away from your sin and your self-righteousness. We often talk about turning from sin. Self-righteousness is sin. It's an arch sin. Trusting in what you can do to perform before God to please him is the height of all sins. Trusting in what Christ did to wash away your sins is what you must do this morning. Only the work of Christ has the power to remove the stain of sin and self-righteousness that is on your heart and cover you with his own righteousness. And that will be the assurance of your acceptance before God. And if you're here this morning thinking that you are saved on the basis of what you do, because you're even here this morning, I pray today, by God's grace, you will repent. He will grant you faith to believe the gospel. Let me mention this, too, about doubting your salvation, because doubt in itself is not necessarily a sign of an unregenerate heart unless that doubt leads you to trust again in your own obedience, your own religious efforts to save yourself. Only faith in Christ can save and sanctify you. 
Some of you think of sanctification in this way if you're not careful. You think because you don't do it perfectly that you can't be saved. And so you begin to think that you've got to do things harder and more aggressively. You've got to gut it out, if you will. Well, saints, sanctification doesn't come that way. It comes as a result of regeneration and the new heart you've been given that recoils at sin and rejoices in Christ. And when you really doubt whether or not you're saved and base it on what your performance looks like, you need to come back to this simple truth that Christ has saved you and he will sanctify you all by his grace. You're responsible to walk in obedience. But if you have a new heart, you want to do that. The desire is present, though the flesh is weak. Now, let me assure you something here. Again, that all Christians and sometimes we talk about doubt and we think, well, you know, if I'm a real Christian, I would never doubt my salvation. (laughs) That's a lie. All Christians will have doubts. They will have doubts from time to time because, again, we don't live a consistently, perfectly righteous life. We still struggle with sin, indwelling sin in our flesh. But here's what you need to learn to do when you have doubts based on the truth of what we're going to see in First John this morning. What you need to do when you have doubts is you need to doubt your doubting heart. And you need to examine it according to Scripture. You need to put your faith in the objective written revelation of God, not your subjective emotional expression or feeling at the moment. You need to look to God's word, his promises that teach that. Those who trust in Christ alone will be saved and saved to the uttermost. He'll not lose one. And here's why. Our salvation is predestined for his glory. He will not fail to be glorified. He will start the good work in us. He will complete it all for the praise and glory of his name. That's your assurance of salvation and sanctification. So our assurance ultimately rests on God's written revelation, his word that came to us in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God's promises that Christ completed for us in the flesh. That's where we find our assurance of salvation. And when a Christian examines his life in light of that, he'll find assuring evidence that he is born again. When you look at your life in light of what the revelation of God says about what it looks like to be born again, you will see at least glimmers of evidence, small snippets of evidence of regeneration in your life. The fruit of new birth may be small at times, but rest assured it will be there if you're truly born again. Spiritual fruit will be evident not only to yourself, but to others around you. And that's what we're going to look at in first John. And I hope it encourages you and I hope it causes you to examine yourself because I really think we live in a very dangerous time today where Christians so-called professing evangelicals and reformed people come and hear the word of God preached so often and they accept it intellectually, but there is never a change of the heart. And they're convincing themselves that they're born again based on their orthodox confession or their church practice. And I really want to strip that away this morning. And I want you to have an objective truth, a standard to look at to help you understand what the basis of your assurance is and what it should look like in the heart that's truly been regenerated. So go with me to 1 John. We're going to survey six observable evidences of the new birth here. 
And as you're turning there, I want you to notice that these evidences that we read in First John, I find this fascinating when I was studying through this. These evidences that we see here, I think that when you see them in their flow of context and the flow between the chapters one to another, you see that they, they, these evidences all flow in and out of one another, in and out from one another, and they're revealed here to help us. John tells us these things were written so that we would know that we have eternal life. They're to help us examine our hearts and lead us back to rest ultimately in Christ's work as the basis of our assurance. And what he did will produce fruit in the born again soul. Now, here's what you need to understand. When you look at this, this is where people get confused about sanctification and regeneration. When, when first John is, is going, to, going to describe these evidences to us of, of salvation, of regeneration, I want you to understand that he's simply talking about the result of the new birth, not a way to obtain or maintain regeneration, salvation. These are simply just evidences that display the progressive grace-empowered change of nature that we receive due to our union with Christ. So when you read these, when we talk about love for the brethren and we talk about uh, obeying God's commands, do not try to invert this. Do not try to make this the way you please God or the way you find sanctification before God. This is what he's saying is the result of justification. Sanctification is just the fruit of regeneration, justification. So let's look at the first evidence. The first evidence of the new birth that we find in First John one five to two two is number one a desire for unhindered fellowship with God, a desire for unhindered fellowship with God, and that desire is what's going to lead us to repentance, because sin is what hinders our fellowship with God. Look at First John one five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship koinonia with him while we walk or live in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things, the things he just said to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, when you read that, you need to be asking yourself some serious questions in light of what this says, in light of what he says about Jesus, who is who is an advocate. He is the lawyer for the defense, who is our righteousness. Does, does that drive in your heart a desire for unhindered fellowship with God? Remember, your sins Break your fellowship with God, not that God is not present, caring for you, providing hope for you, giving you directions in his word. But you have pushed yourself away from God as far as you can when you're living in your sins and you don't want to be around him. The sinner does not like his sins to be exposed, but the Christian does. The born again person does. 
because we have a desire for unhindered fellowship with God. So my question for us this morning is this. Is this desire evident in your soul when you sin? Is this desire evident in your soul when you sin? First, John is saying it, it should be. The true believer should desire nothing less than full fellowship with God. And what hinders that is sin. Therefore, we confess our sins and we rejoice in repentance because Christ has already atoned for these things. And this passage, John's telling us that we can have assurance, we can have hope. We can have hope because it says we are cloaked in the blood soaked robes of Christ's righteousness. He is our propitiation. His blood pleads our case before the Father. His blood appeased the Father for us. We should have died on the cross and suffered eternity in hell. But Christ took it for us in our place. And His appeasing work reminds us that we have been fully pardoned. We have no sin debt before God. Can you fathom that this morning? You have no sin debt, yet you sin. Because you have no sin debt, therefore you want to confess the sins that Christ atoned for at the cross out of the joy and thankful heart that you've been given because you want full fellowship with God that he provided through Christ's reconciling sacrifice. That's the promise that drives Christians to respond to their sins by confessing them, by repenting of them and doing so joyfully and regularly. Christians repent consistently for the rest of their lives because we still battle with sin inwardly. And Christ is reminding us, I have atoned for these things. Therefore, confess these things and you'll find forgiveness. There's forgiveness for you already provided in Christ's atonement. And so the true Christian, when they sin, will do what John's saying here. They will confess their sins. They will come in line with God's view of their sins, God's perspective of their sins. They will not be oopses. They will not be mistakes. They will be offenses against a holy and righteous God. And whatever we've done, we see it from that perspective when we are born again. We do not ignore them. We do not overlook them. We do not excuse them. We call them what God calls them. This is what drove Christ to the cross to pay our debt. Why wouldn't we confess that and ask forgiveness? Why wouldn't we confess that and turn from that? He covered us with his righteousness. How could we go on living in sin without repentance? We couldn't if you're born again. That's the truth that John is giving us that he says should joyfully drive us to confess our guilt and rest in Christ reconciling work. And saints, that, that revelation is what leads to true and lasting repentance in the Christian's life. The revelation that God has dealt with our sins already in Christ. That's my assurance that I've been forgiven. That's what drives me to confess my sins and turn from them on a regular basis. I'm not trying to please God. I'm not trying to simply make God happier with me because of the way I'm living. I am resting in the fact that Christ has already accomplished that. And now I, though I fail and fall short, I want to honor him by not living in the things that he has already atoned for any longer. So let me ask you this regarding your salvation, the evidence of your new birth this morning. This is going to get touchy here. Do you confess your sins to God regularly? Do you do it joyfully? Do you do it because you have a greater desire for fellowship with him than you have for sin? Do you want fellowship with him so bad and so richly restored that you're going to pray? You're going to pray 
so seriously that you're going to pray that God would send someone to expose your sins so that you could have that fellowship restored? Are you that serious about how much you want fellowship with God that you would actually pray that your sins would be exposed? If you're a Christian, you will. You will. Ask yourself, is that desire evident in your life? If it's not, why not? Do you love sin more than you love Jesus? Obviously, yes. You'd rather have fellowship with sin than fellowship with God. Ask yourself these questions. Think about this. Do you you want his fellowship so bad that you're willing to pray for your sins to be exposed so that you can repent and have that constant fellowship with God restored? Now, I'm not saying you do it perfectly. I'm not saying you do it all the time like you ought. But is that desire in your heart? And let me encourage you if it is. If this is your desire, you have evidence to believe that you are born again. You have evidence to believe you're born again because that desire doesn't come from within. It comes from without. It came because of Christ's righteousness that's been imputed to you. It comes to you. That desire flows out of you because of the union you now have with God through the work of Jesus Christ, who is our reconciling, soul cleansing, uniting great high priest. He has brought us together He has united us to himself. He has reconciled us to God. And because of that, we know our fellowship will never be broken. Therefore, we're going to pray when we feel it broken because of our own sin. We're going to pray that God would do whatever it takes to restore that sweet fellowship once again. Church, we should want to do this out of joy if we're born again. And we should do this with confidence because God wants us to have sweet fellowship with him. He wants us to walk in a way that is pleasing to him because of his son, though, not because we're trying to appease him. He wants us to know that since our sins have already been atoned for by Christ, covered by his righteousness, we no longer have to face his holy gaze of wrath. We see him now as a good father who blesses us and his face shines upon us. And God wants us to see that and rejoice in that and let that drive us to repentance. Let that drive us to sanctification out of the joy of this reconciliation. Christ's work is what makes us now pleasing in God's sight. That should be what causes you to have a greater desire for fellowship than for sin if you are born again. The new birth is what creates this. New birth, regeneration, a new heart. It's what creates a desire for unhindered fellowship with God, even when we fail to please God. Even when we fail, this desire comes from God because God wants us to be assured that Christ has already atoned for this. And he wants us to be able to look at our sins at the moment and then confess that they are the way they are because of our own our own choices. Christians are not enslaved to the to the flesh any longer. We have a new master and we sin. We do so willingly. No one forces us. The devil didn't make us do it. We do it because we have our own desires that we let dominate us rather than resting what Christ has done. And we have a greater desire now, though, as Christians to see what Christ has done and to use that as the reason for turning from the sins that once enslaved us. And God is eager to help us with that. He is eager to help us. He he wants us to have a cleansed conscience. He wants us to have sweet fellowship with him because through both we're magnifying the power of Christ's atoning work when we confess our sins and repent of those sins. 
And if you're born again, you'll want the same desire if you are truly in Christ. This will be the desire of your heart. That desire leads us to the second evidence of the new birth that we see in 1 John. And that second evidence flows out of a joyful and cleansed heart and soul. And the evidence is this. Number two, a longing in your heart to keep God's commands. And we see that in 1 John 2, 3 to 6. And then chapter 3, 23 and 24. Before I read that, let me ask you this to think about. What we're going to read here, this this going to describe the longing of the truly born again person, the longing of the heart to keep God's commands. Is that longing evident in your own heart today? According to first John, it should be. Look what it says in two, three to six. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's a really clear verse, isn't it? There's no ambiguity. If you say you're united to him through Christ's reconciling work and you don't do what he says, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're deceived. The truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word or abides in his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. It's produced. It's manifest. By this we may know that we are in him. There we go. We may know that we're saved if we keep his word and do what he says. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So not only is it a thing that our minds should conceive of and understand that his word and his command is something that we should love and want to follow, but our bodies follow suit. Not intellectual assent. It's more than that. It changes the way we act. We have a new heart with new affections for God and his commandments. Look at chapter three, verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides or you could say resides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. His spirit will testify to this union that we have, because this union is one that actually wants to honor God's word. It's one that actually wants to have our lives conformed to the image of Christ. Practically, we actually want to follow his words to magnify his work. Is that the longing of your heart this morning? It's the longing of the new heart. The new birth creates a longing in our heart to live a life that is worthy of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand when we see the word commandment here. Don't misunderstand me or John in these verses. John is not saying that obedience to God's commands would be the root of your salvation. Rather, he's saying or describing the fruit of that salvation. He's talking about what will flow out of the heart that is united to God is a desire to do the things that God loves. We'll long to follow these commands because when a Christian hears God's commands, they understand that they are they are given to them by a holy and righteous God who is good and his word is true. And they long to honor the lawgiver because of what he has done to send his son to be the fulfiller of the law for us. 
now because of that, we want to walk as he walked. We want to honor his name. See, I think we, we get mixed up about obedience to the commands. We begin to think this is what we're doing to keep God happy. No, this is what we're doing because he's really happy with his son. And his son did this for us. And when we walk in obedience, we're honoring his name. We're saying we're united to him, the one who took our place. And we're testifying to his great worth as our Lord and our Savior when we are doing what he commands. So you need to ask yourself, when you look at verses like this, is this evident in your life? Do you have a desire to obey the commands of God? Is there a pattern of obedience in your life that's driven by gratitude over what Christ has accomplished or what Christ is worth? Is there a pattern of this kind of obedience in your life? I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not an unbroken pattern. But is there a pattern? I mean, can you see in your life where you have willfully and joyfully looked to the words of God and said, this is what I want to do and I'm falling short, but God, I want to honor you in it. I want to keep on doing it. I want to keep repenting. Until I see you glorified through my life being transformed by your commands. If you desire this, you have evidence to believe that you are regenerated. And here's why. It is the new birth that stirs up that desire. It's the new birth that gives you the longing and and causes you to want to repent and rest in what Christ did. Because he kept the commands in your place. You want to honor him through your life out of the joy of this assurance that Jesus is your propitiation. He is your sin offering. God is pleased with you because of him. Therefore, you want to do what honors him. And out of that truth, out of that revelation, we have hope. And that hope stirs up a longing in those who are born again to honor Christ's obedience by obeying his will and walking worthily of his name. And get this, doing that out of gratefulness, not guilt. Doing that out of a conviction, not out of the fear of condemnation. Doing that out of love, not legalism. Not perfectly, but joyfully. That is what will be the result of the regenerated heart's longing. They want to do the things that honor God out of gratefulness. They're not driven to guiltiness to actually, that's why I got to do this to keep God happy. But out of a conviction, because we have no fear of condemnation anymore. I now belong to him. I want to honor him. What an amazing blessing to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And to have his son come into the world in time to take my place. My life is his. And I want to honor him by following his commands. Jesus, Jesus makes it clear he is Lord. And if you say you belong to him and you do not do what he says, you are a liar. The truth is not in you. Now let's consider the third evidence of the new birth. Which can be described as, number three, a sacrificial love for other Christians. A sacrificial love that actually flows out of a longing to honor Christ. A love for other Christians that flows from this longing to bring Christ praise and adoration. Before I read this text here, it's in 1 John 2. Go back there with me, 2-7. I want you to ask yourself this question. Does Christ-like love characterize the pattern of your life? Does it characterize a pattern? Do you see a pattern of Christ-like love Giving yourself for the sake of others. Not perfectly, not 
fully, but do you see a desire? Do you see a pattern where you've been able to do this? It's not because you're so great, because that is not the case. Because it's not easy to give up yourself for the sake of others. That is a miracle of salvation. We want to do it out of praise for Jesus. That's what drives it. That's what separates it from the sacrificial love of the lost. You know, you can be a philanthropist. You can be a great nurse and give your time and money and efforts away to helping the poor. But if you do not do it for the glory of God, it is sin. Because you want the praise. You want the pat on the back. But Christ-like love is not like that. Christ-like love is the kind of love that actually gives and gives and gives and probably never gets back from a lot of people. But you keep giving because you want to honor Christ who loved you and laid down his life for you when you couldn't give anything back. You want to magnify him. Is that characterized in your life? Or do you do you look around when people are are using you, if you will, through your love? They, they, they soak in your love. They receive your love. They take the gifts of your love, but they don't really ever give it back. And you go, ah, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not getting anything in return. But in reality, we don't give to get back as Christians. We give to glorify Jesus because he gave to save us. Look at 2.7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. The word new there means fresh. A fresh approach, if you will, to the old commandment through Christ's love. A new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks or abides or lives in the darkness does not does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you love like Christ loves, you won't cause other Christians to stumble. You will do whatever it takes to help them excel. Look over into uh, chapter three, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That person is not born again. By this we know love. Here's the definition. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, right, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. This is how you can know that you're born again. Look at chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this the love of God has been manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you, do you see how how the indicative leads to the imperative in verses 10 and 11? Because of what he did, we ought to do what we're doing. Because he is our propitiation. This weaves its way all the way through this letter. 
All these things that are evident about our salvation are hinging upon Jesus's atonement. This is what actually gives testimony to our assurance. He accomplished it. He accomplished our redemption. And the result of his accomplishment will be a changed heart in the Christian. A changed life. A life that's characterized by his love. That's what the new birth creates in us. It creates in us a love in our hearts to reflect the Savior's love to others. The true believer will do that. They will love to care for God's people. Fellow believers, the bride of Christ, that'll be your greatest desire to do whatever it takes to see a brother or sister excel in the gospel, excel in their spiritual walk. So let me ask you a question regarding the evidence of your salvation, your new birth this morning. Are you willing to serve other Christians this morning? Here's where it gets tricky. Are you willing to serve other Christians at the expense of your own comfort and your own freedom? Are you willing to set aside your freedoms for the good of the weak? If you're not, I don't believe the love of Christ dwells in you. Because you don't care about them more than you care about yourself. So test yourself this morning. Ask yourself this question too. Do you go out of your way as a Christian to keep other Christians from stumbling? Do you go out of your way to encourage holiness in them? When you're in fellowship with other believers, is that what you're doing? Or are you adding something to stumble them? Are you speaking the truth to them in love? Are you willing to express Christ-like love by, by being willing to get burned, to pull them out of the fires of sin? Or do you stoke those fires rather than pull them out? Are you causing them to stumble? If so, the love of God is not in you. Here's why. God ordained that our love that we express to one another as the church, that that love would be most manifest in the way we care for one another at the expense of our own well-being many times. He wants us to die to self and live unto him. He wants us to consider others as more significant than ourselves because that's what Jesus did. And when we do that, Jesus is magnified through our sacrifice. And if you have been loved by him, that kind of love will flow out of you to other Christians because they belong to him. They are the bride of Christ. So, folks, don't be fooled about your salvation this morning. You can't say that you love Christ if you hold back Christ-like love or cause his bride to fail and to fall and to be defiled. You cannot say that you love his bride if you do that. Therefore, you cannot say you love Jesus. Jesus died to save and sanctify his bride. And a true Christian wouldn't dare neglect those people. And he would not dare cause harm to fall upon them. The way we treat Christ's bride reveals how much we value our Savior. If we do not have love for one another, we do not value the love we receive from Christ at all. Again, this is not something you can gut out. This is something that flows out of the regenerated heart. And if this is your desire, though, again, you fall short. If this is your desire, though, then, then you have something to hope in this morning. Even when you fall short, you have reason to believe you're born again if this desire is within you. And it's coming out of you to some degree. And here's why. Because that desire is a result of being united to the heart of Christ. Being reconciled to God through his work. We have been made at one with him. We have a new heart beating within us. 
He put the love of Christ within us to be displayed through us. And when you do that, you're testifying to the work that he accomplished. It reveals the power of his reconciling grace. It reveals it to us as Christians, but it also reveals it to the world around us. And and that same love that, that causes us to give ourselves to others, that same love also works in another way to cause us to hate the things that kept us from honoring God and serving others before we were saved. That's the fourth evidence of the new birth that we find in 1 John. 1 John 2.15, and that is a hatred for the temptations of the world. Let me read to you 2.15-17. And think about this seriously. Ask yourself if this is your testimony. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides or continues or is held or kept by God, right, forever in Christ, kept by God. United in him, abiding in him. And this world has no constant pleasing effect upon them. Now, we do enjoy sin for a season. But if you're born again, it will make you sick. You'll be sick by it. So ask yourself this. If you're born again, do you have these things in your life dominating you? No. If you're born again, you're not going to be consumed by the flesh's desires, consumed by the, the desires of your eyes, the, the pride of your possessions and your abilities. Now, if you've been born again, there's going to be a change within. You're going to be able to hate the things that once kept you from honoring Jesus. Things like the lust of the flesh, the, the pride of life, the Eyes that are desiring the things of the world. Those things kept you from loving Jesus and those things kept you from loving others. Think about this. Those three sins keep you from giving yourself away for the sake of Christ to serve others and love them the way he loved us. But if you're born again, you'll have a hatred for these things that kept you from loving others, kept you from loving Christ. The new birth will create that. It'll create a hatred in us for the things that we once loved in our sinful state. A true believer will hate what God hates and what cost Jesus his life on the cross. So do you see that change in your own heart? Do you see that change in your own attitude toward the world about the temptations in the world in light of what Christ has done to separate you from the world? What he suffered because of these temptations in the world. Does that change your attitude toward these temptations? If it does, if it causes you to hate these things that once consumed your desires, once you thought this was the greatest satisfaction you could have, if you could just please the flesh, please the eyes, and please the pride of my life, I would be satisfied. But now those things are a pale comparison compared to Jesus and the satisfaction we have in him. And so now you hate these things because Christ is greater. Christ is superior. Christ is all sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. If you now hate these things and love Jesus, you hate the things that once dominated you and your desires, you have hope of being born again. This change of attitude about the world is a result of your intellectual ability to say, that's bad, this is good. Not at all. Your ability to change is driven by faith in what Christ did to overcome these for you. His victory. You want his victory to be magnified through your turning from these things. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There we are. If you're born from God, born from above, you overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, our faith in Jesus. Jesus has shown us the reality of what this world will bring us. Jesus has shown us what he did to conquer it for us. And now we can turn away from the pleasures of the world, the desires that seem to capture the world. We can turn away from them knowing they're passing. But what is transient is, is something that we will not have to ever be enslaved by any longer. What is temporal will never actually dominate us anymore. We have Christ who is supreme and eternal. He has overcame these in our place. And that changes the desires of our heart. His victory is what overcame these for us. And they brought us new affections. This, this victory, he, he did this work of saving us to give us a new affection for the things that are eternal, the things that are above, not the things that are below. So if you hate and turn from the things that kept you from loving God and loving others, you have evidence to believe that you have been born again because you didn't stir that in and of yourselves from your own desires. It came again from without. The new birth is what opened your eyes to see the sinfulness of sin and the temptations of the world that kept us from enjoying sweet fellowship with God, enjoying the commands of God, enjoying the power of Christ's love that overcame the world for us. And so gratefulness over what God has shown us in his word and through his son and that reconciliation we receive from him. That's what creates a hunger, a hunger for holiness in our lives. The true Christian will long for the things that honor God and turn from the things that bring him shame and bring us further from helping magnify his name in the world. The fifth evidence of the new birth, we can find it in 1 John 3, 4 to 10. And that evidence is this. It's also a hunger in your life for practical holiness. Before I read this, just ask yourself this question. Do Do you long to be holy? And I don't know how to describe longing here at this point. In light of what Jesus did and who he is, do you want do you want to be honorable to him? Do you want to magnify his worthiness in the world around you as much as you long for the things that enslaved you when you were in your sins? I mean, look, I I never had to make much effort in sinning. It just flowed from the natural desire of my heart. It just came out and I would do whatever it takes to get what I want in my sin. And do you want holiness that bad? Is it the natural desire of your heart? If it is, it's because you've been born again. If it's not, if it's something that seems like a foreign thing to you, it seems like it's work for you, maybe you need to examine yourself to see if you've been born again. If you're Christian, if you've been born again, that longing will be within you. Look what it says in 3, 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I mean, keeps on habitually sinning without repentance. No one who keeps on sinning, abides in sin, has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. This is serious business. Whoever practices habitually righteousness is righteous as he is righteous because our righteousness comes from him. Therefore, it flows out of us because of him. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The practice of sinning is the fruit of being united to Satan under his dominion. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He combines them here. This is important. Verses 6, 8, and 9 there refer to a person who has a life that's marked out by habitual, unrepentant sin. He's telling us here these people are spiritually dead because they're still dominated by sin and Satan. And that's, that's serious business here. You tell me you're a Christian. You tell me you're born again. We express to you the concern over sin, yet you say it's not that serious, it's not that big a deal, or we make excuses for it. That is not the sign of one who has been truly regenerated by God's Spirit and through His grace. That is the sign of one who's dominated by Satan and the sins of this flesh. When God plants his seed in us, something changes if we're born again. If God plants his seed in us, he sets us free from these things and he sets us free to live for the glory of God. If you're living for the glory of yourself and your own sins, your own satisfaction, you are not born again. Examine yourself. And here's why. When you understand what he's saying here, this terminology he uses that God's planting this seed in us. He's telling us that, that in the new birth, God plants the seed of his divine nature in us and he gives us Christ's very life to, who, to bring the spiritually dead to life. And he grants us a new heart, the very heart of Jesus himself. Could, could Jesus abide in sin? No way. He was holy and righteous and wanted to honor the Father. If we are in him, he is in us, we will likewise want to honor the Father through our life of repentance and hungering for righteousness. That new heart that we've been given is a heart that's empowered by his spirit. And it's also empowered by the word, the, the law that was written on our heart by him. We now joyfully pursue holiness and we joyfully turn from wickedness because we've been given a new heart. Turn to Ezekiel quickly, 36, 26. I'll read it to you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Folks, a Christian, a Christian will hunger. Their hearts will hunger to magnify God's word. They'll hunger to magnify the power of Christ's work that gave us the new heart. And his work will not only secure us for eternal salvation, it'll transform us. That's what Ezekiel's saying. It'll transform us. It'll transform vessels of dirt and make us into trophies of grace, not just in eternity, but here on earth, practically through sanctification, through the pursuit of righteousness as a response to what Christ has accomplished. He'll transform those who are born again from the inside out. Those who are saved, if you're born again, you will bear his desires as well as bear his image. If this hunger for righteousness is not in you 
and other things are crowding it out and other things are dominant over that. You know, it's the right thing to say, you know, it's the right thing to profess. But if that is not the desire of your heart that's driving you to repent and confess and trust in Jesus every single day, do not be fooled. You are not born again. If anything else crowds out this desire, if you want your own satisfaction, you want your own rights and ways more than you want to do what is right in God's sight to honor his name. There's evidence that you are not born again. But but even if you are the weakest Christian among us struggling daily because you have this desire within you and you still fall short but you can see a consistency and a desire flowing through your life of, of a lessening of sin in your life and an increasing hunger for holiness. When you hear God speak through his word, there is evidence to believe that you are born again. God doesn't grade us on how well we perform. He graded us in Christ to perform perfectly for us. We are now born from his seed. We are born from above. We are regenerated by his grace. And because of that, even though that that fruit of the hunger of righteousness may be small, it will be there and it'll increase as we submit ourselves to the means of grace because we want to magnify Jesus because his heart is beating in us. Go to first John five eighteen. kind of ties back to first John three, nine and ten. It's an interesting verse. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning habitually without repentance, does not do that. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I don't know what translation you have in front of you, but in verse 18, after it says does not keep on sinning, but he should be capitalized. John is not talking about a life of sinless perfection here. Rather, he's talking about a life of upward direction, upward direction away from sin, driven by a greater desire to magnify Christ's life, his power, his worth to save us and to sanctify us, to magnify his grace in us. He's saying in the new birth, we receive the heart of Christ. That's what protects us. Christ was crushed due to our sins, but that didn't mean he ceased to exist. No, his heart kept on beating. And it still beats today in all those who are regenerated from above, all those who are born again. It pulses in us. It pulses in us. It protects us. It empowers us. It causes us to repent and pursue holiness. Verse 18, when he says, he who is born of God, he who was born of God protects him. He's talking about the born again person being protected by someone else. Verse 18 is referring to Jesus. Christ was the one who was born of God and the one who protects you. He is the one who's at work in your heart. It's now beating in you. You have the heart of Christ driving you to do what he commands. It's the heart of Christ that now beats in your chest, causing you to pursue righteousness, to magnify his grace, to show the power of his reconciling work through us. That new heart doesn't just give us a hunger for righteousness it gives us a thirst to magnify the fountain of our holiness. That's the sixth evidence. The last one we'll look at in first John chapter four. The sixth evidence of the new birth here is that a true Christian will have a thirst for God's word and trust in what it reveals about Jesus. The word Well, the true thirst, because this is where we learn about Christ, who is the source of our righteousness. 
chapter four, verse one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. That is the apostolic writings here. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Go on over to chapter and chapter four down to verse 15. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, qualitatively equal to God. God abides in him and he is in God. Now go further down to chapter five, verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Church, the the new birth creates a thirst for the knowledge of God's word, for the truth about who Jesus Christ is. We want to know this. And so if if, if you now thirst, examine yourself, if you you now thirst for God's word on a regular basis and, and you find hope and faith and encouragement in reading it, you then have a objective reason to believe you are born again. But let me just say this. If there's no desire to be in God's word, how can you say that you belong to Jesus, the word who supposedly dwells in your heart, who testifies to himself in his written revelation to reveal to us his grace and his power and his mercy? How can you say you're born again if you have no thirst for his word or to know him? So think about these things this morning. And after looking at these, these objective evidences, I think some of you might actually be sitting here thinking, I don't I really don't desire these things like I should. Um, They're not evident in my life. What about me? Well, there may be evidence to believe that you're not born again. And that's frightening on one level. But it's a reality in many churches. There are people sitting in pews every Sunday who are going to hell under the preaching of the gospel in reformed churches as well. And even though some of you maybe have sat in our church and Christian churches and reformed churches for a long time and you've claimed to be a Christian, yet when you look at these objective reasons to believe that you're you're a Christian, you say, I, I'm really not seeing this in my life. I'm not honoring Christ as Lord in my life. Maybe you've been making a profession of faith, but you don't have any possession of that faith. You're not truly regenerated. And you're realizing that this morning. It's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And to blaspheme his son's work by professing to be a Christian and walking in sin is one of the most frightening things of all. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. There could be people among us this morning who will hear those words. But I have good news for you today if you are one of those persons. By God's grace, you're here. And by God's grace, you're being called by him to look again to Christ maybe for the very first time, and to be saved from your unrighteousness, 
your sin, your self-righteousness. You're being called on by God to turn away from those things that you've trusted in. Your orthodoxy. And look to Jesus, the Savior of the Savior of the hypocrites. But you first have to confess your sins before him and recognize you're pretending. That will take a miracle of grace, and I can't do that. But I can beg you, and I can command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to repent and believe this morning. And I do so. Though there could be some like that this morning, I know there's probably far more like this that are here this morning. You are probably born again, most of you. I'm thankful for that. But you may constantly battle with doubting your own salvation. Because when you look at your life in light of these passages, you begin to think, you know, this used to mark my life, but it's like a dim memory now. I don't see this marked out in my life so much anymore. Well, this isn't meant to discourage you. This is meant to encourage you. Let me encourage you in this, that God may be correcting you this morning out of love, out of discipline. Correcting you to remember, maybe maybe you're only looking at this as a memory because you've neglected the things that God's given you to help it be a reality. Maybe you've neglected the means of grace, fellowship with God, time in his word, repentance, fellowship with the saints. And maybe again, God is here reminding you this morning, look, I've won the battle for you. I've obtained the victory in Christ. You can rest in me and let that drive you to sanctification out of the joy of knowing you're forgiven. And I'm sure that God wants us to be assured of this. I'm I'm sure that he is eager for us to be at rest and be assured because it magnifies Christ's accomplishments. He's more eager for us to, to be at rest and be assured than we are even to ask for that this morning. But I want to encourage you to do so. Ask for it. He will give you what you need. He'll give you the rest that you need so that you can be secure and you can rejoice and you can pursue sanctification joyfully out of knowing you've been forgiven. You have eternal assurance because of Christ's accomplishment. If you desire that this morning, or if you see those evidences in your life and you think those those things are partly there, they're just not there like I'd like them to be, just call upon him and ask him to help you to rest in Christ's promises, Christ's accomplishments. But a word again to those who are here among us that maybe you look at these things and you're thinking, yeah, Randy, I know it's all right. You just said all the things that we ought to be evidencing, but it's not that big a deal. I'm saved by grace. Well, you're not saved by grace so you can live like hell. You're saved by grace so that you can magnify Jesus. So let me just call upon you to repent and look to Christ.